Welcome to the Hope on the Hard Road podcast, where you and your family can find community, find encouragement, and find hope for the road ahead. Speak encouraging words to one another. Build up hope so that you will all be together in this. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Hey guys, you are going to learn a lot on today's episode. Attorney Wendy Dumlau is back for another episode in our special needs support series. This time she's sharing great insights with us about Medi-Cal and in-home supportive services or IHSS. Let's listen in. Well, welcome back, Wendy. Uh, we're continuing today discussing uh, supports for families. Uh, so last time we discussed regional center and we have heard you mention pursuing other generic resources like Medi-Cal. Uh, can you explain what Medi-Cal is for our listeners? Yeah, sure. So Medi-Cal is California's Medicaid health program. Um, the program pays for a variety of medical services for children and adults with limited income and resources. And so the Medi-Cal looks at two things, income, which could be public benefits or wages or any sort of income that's coming in, and then resources, which I like to call like your savings, basically. So to have Medi-Cal, you cannot have more, an individual cannot have more than $2,000 in savings. There are some exceptions to that rule. So um, individuals or families can own one home, they can have one car. Um, There can be money that's put into a special needs trust or an ABLE account, and those don't count as savings. But if you just have $2,000 or more, well, it's more than 2,000 in a savings account or a checking account, you would not be eligible for Medi-Cal. So it really is a low income program and it's it's almost like a healthcare program, right? And it provides healthcare services. Um, the income requirements are a little tricky. You can Google them, but it really depends on the family size. So like a family of four, their max income for the year would be different than if it was a family of one or two. So how does Medi-Cal work when someone is a client of regional center then? Yeah, so regional center, um, regional center and Medi-Cal and like social security, all of those should should work together. Um, I think one of the tricky things or maybe a benefit actually for families whose income are too high or their resources are too high for someone to get Medi-Cal is the person who's a regional center client will can still get Medi-Cal under what's called the DDS waiver. And what they do, what Medi-Cal does is if you're a regional center client, but your family's income is too high, they make you your own household. And what that means is it doesn't mean you have to live in your own household, right? You can still live with your family, but they make your income and resources your own. So you become an individual of your own home or household and they look at your income. And a lot of times these, you know, it's minors and they don't have any income. Um, There are some situations where there's a minor who's getting social security disability for some reason, maybe from a parent or something, and that would be considered income for them. So even though they're on the DDS waiver, so they have Medi-Cal and they they probably don't have more than 2000 in savings, they might have 
income that's higher than what Medi-Cal would like. So Medi-Cal then charges them a share of cost. So they don't kick them off of Medi-Cal, but they tell them, hey, you can only have $700 a month, but your social security disability benefits are 1,200. So your share of cost is 400. So they're having to pay $400. It's almost like a deductible every month before they can get any Medi-Cal services. That can make it difficult for that client because now they're paying $400 out of pocket they really need for something else just so that they can have Medi-Cal. And that is one of those situations that we talked about last time where you don't have to pursue a generic resource if you're losing money by pursuing the generic resource. Hmm, it's great information. Um, looking at Medi-Cal, what sort of things are covered under it? There's a lot of stuff covered. Um, and I always say that age is really a factor. So there is a Medi-Cal program. Um, we abbreviate it as EPSDT. And it's for anybody under 21, and it covers a lot more services for those people. You can get medically necessary speech covered, OT, behavior modification programs like ABA. Um, I think they still cover dental services. It's called Dentical. Um, mental health services. There's They'll pay for placements, like out-of-home placements. So for, for children, which is the under 21 group, according to Medi-Cal rules, there's a lot more services. And then as you get older or if you're 21 or over, the services are a lot less limited. Um, one of the programs that is available to minors or adults, which I think is super valuable, is the IHSS program, or we call it, um, that's abbreviated, but it's the In-Home Supportive Services Program. What if uh, the parents have their own uh, private insurance? How would Medi-Cal work with somebody that also has private insurance? So Medi-Cal would be almost like when we were talking about regional center, you know, the payer of last resort. Um, Medi-Cal would pay last. So you can have private insurance and you can have Medi-Cal. So let's say your private insurance is paying, I don't know, 80% of something, and it's a Medi-Cal provider that you went to, Medi-Cal could cover the rest. Um, Medi-Cal, the other, the other good thing about Medi-Cal is like the, you can only get IHSS through Medi-Cal. You can't get it through private insurance. Um, there's another program called in-home operations, which is in-home nursing. That is only a Medi-Cal program. So private insurance, there probably is part of their policy where you can get in-home nursing, but Medi-Cal has a really great program if you qualify like medically where you could get around the clock nursing care in your own home and there's no other healthcare program that provides that medicare does not provide it and i don't think private insurance provides it yeah that is that is really good information to know for our families you know you mentioned ihss can you tell us more about that program sure so this is a program where it's it's in every county and it is, I don't know if it's in other states, but my guess is it is because Medicaid is a federal system, um, but it's where the county will pay a caregiver or a parent. And there's like rules related to when a parent can be paid, but a caregiver or a parent can be paid to care for a person with a disability. 
you the person with the disability can get up to 283 hours a month of IHSS. And what they're providing is really assistance with like daily living activities, right? So some of the categories under IHSS that someone can get paid to do for an individual with a disability would be things like bowel and bladder care. So like toileting assistance, bathing and grooming, um, feeding if somebody needs assistance with like cutting their food up and supervision while being while while eating um, and any other daily living activities. Other categories could be transportation to medical appointments, medication administration, and then the category that I I believe is the most valuable for those who are eligible is what we call protective supervision. Um, all of these categories are ranked between like a one and a five. So five being the most severe and every category except protective supervision is ranked. And then there's this hourly task guideline that goes with it. I think that's not as important, I think, to your listeners as it is that there, as, as it is as that, that there's exceptions to that rule, right? So the County may have a guideline, like they say, for instance, oh, you're a rank two. So for feeding, there's a range. You can only get between one and three hours a week because you're a rank two. And there's an exception to that. If you tracked that, it actually takes a lot longer than that because of behaviors during eating or the level of supervision that's required. You can prove that you're entitled to an exception and they can go beyond that guideline. It's just a guideline. It's not the law. Yeah, that's great. Um, you know, one of the things we may not have mentioned is that each one of these programs has an annual review with it, right? So annually you come back to this. And one of the things that was really helpful to us was to go on that government website, print out those categories, and then literally time on good days and bad days, how long it took us, what all was entailed in doing the tasks and supporting our daughter in those tasks and then presenting the average of those times to um, the IHSS worker at the annual meeting. And so that gave us something that was, that was actually, you know, objective um, to point out to them um, as they were looking at those rankings and those categories. Yeah. And a lot of times they don't want to do it, right? They say, oh no, we don't do that anymore. We have hourly task guidelines. But like I said, those are guidelines. And, and what a guideline means is it's the general rule, but it's not law. Um, and there is definitely exceptions to those. And just to sort of piggyback on what you said about being prepared for these meetings, um, we'll talk in a little bit about like some advocacy tips to get ready for your IHSS meeting. And what you just described you did is, is part of like what my advocacy tip would be. So that's great that you guys have sort of been through that process and figured out that, yeah, it's important to do this and be prepared for that annual meeting. Yeah, that's super. Thank you so much for that. Parents need to hear those things. So can someone with supportive living or say a group home residential placement apply for IHSS? Um, it depends. So people who live in group homes or skilled nursing facilities or what we consider residential placement is are not entitled to IHSS because the group home is paid a certain level 
um, of funding to provide those IHSS categories 24-7. That's why they live in the group home. Supported living or living in some in your parents' home, um, you would be entitled to IHSS because it's just a separate setting. So basically to get IHSS, you have to have Medi-Cal and you have to live in your own home. And by that, they mean not a residential placement, like not a residential facility, basically. Okay. Yeah, that, that helps to clarify it. Okay. So Wendy, earlier, you just mentioned protective supervision. Can you explain a little bit about that? And then how hard is it to get protective supervision? Yeah. So um, you have a lot to say about protective supervision. I think it's one of the most valuable categories because it comes with the most hours. So if you are eligible and receive protective supervision, that's a hundred, it automatically comes with 195 hours a month. And they determine the test of how you get protective supervision is determined by your age. So first, let me give just a little bit of a description of what it's for. Okay. So it's for people um, who have a mental impairment or mental illness who, because of those mental impairments or mental illnesses, need to be observed 24 hours a day to protect them from injury. What they're looking at when they're determining if you're eligible is they rank your judgment, memory, and orientation. So judgment, like how do you make decisions? Do you make safe decisions, right? Or does your your mental impairment interfere with that? Memory, can you remember for example, that it's unsafe to walk across the street without looking both ways. Um, And I think a lot of people with developmental disabilities have trouble with those areas. And then orientation is a little confusing, but it it means a couple things. Are you paying attention to what's going on around you so you don't get run over? But also, do you understand the days, the months, the year, sort of where you're at, right? And the reason that one's important, it's more important to people with mental illness or things like dementia versus people with a mental impairment like autism, because they might be able to tell you the day, but they can't tell you if you say to them, we're going to leave in 15 minutes. They don't know what that means, right? They can't conceptualize that because of their limitations because of their mental impairment. So so that's the description of protective supervision. But then there's a test that there's like a legally there's a test that they look at. So if you're a minor, it's called the Garrett test and it's a four part test. And they ask four questions. Do you have a mental impairment? Um, the, The big question Um, is always number two, are they non-self-directing? And the definition of that is an inability due to a mental impairment or mental illness for the individual to assess danger and the risk of harm. And therefore the individual would most likely engage in potentially dangerous activities that could cause self-harm. So all that means is their disability limits their ability to understand the consequences of their unsafe actions, right? Um, And you, the reason it says potentially dangerous is because you don't have to show that they've ever been injured. That's not a requirement under the law. It's just that you have examples to show that they could be injured, right? Opening the door, letting strangers in. 
You've watched them walk across the street without looking for cars. Those kinds of things are examples to show that they could engage in potentially dangerous activities. The other two are for, for minors. Does the person need more care and supervision than a child of their age without a mental impairment? So if the person is two, they're going to require, without a disability, they're going to require a lot of supervision. So it's kind of difficult to get protective supervision for a two-year-old, unless you can show that it's so beyond what the supervision of a two-year-old without a disability would require. And then the last question is, is the supervision need a 24-7 need? And that sort of just goes to is this, is this, these limitations, are they unpredictable, right? Because if they're predictable, you can schedule your supervision. But if they're unpredictable, it's probably a 24-7 need because you just don't know when they're going to occur. So that's the test for minors. The test is the same for adults, but we don't look at their age. We, if they're 18 or older, if they didn't have a disability, they'd be independent. So that's what we look at, right? Yeah. Absolutely. So it can, it can be difficult to get. I think it takes some um, preparation before your meeting and we can sort of talk about that. Like, you know, I have some advocacy tips for that. You know, also a question I think with it too is with IHSS, I know you've talked in Medi-Cal, you've talked about an age like 21 and below and so forth like that. Is there an age that IHSS kind of expires and no longer you know, they're eligible for it? No. So IHSS is sort of like regional center. It's a lifelong service. You just have to have Medi-Cal and you have to be living in your own home. And I actually, this brings me to another, another part of that living in your own home piece is you could be living in your car and you can still get IHSS. So that's what living in your own home means. And some, some of our clients don't have family they don't have an income and they don't have a place to live, but they could still be receiving IHSS services. Wow. Yeah. So advocacy tips. Um, one of the things which you sort of mentioned, and I, I find it helpful for protective supervision as well, is making a log. So I, I always tell my families, log unsafe incidents that occur. And sometimes the nature of the protective supervision that you're providing will make it where you don't have a log of unsafe incidents because you're providing protective supervision, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but it doesn't, it doesn't change that person's um, likelihood of engaging in potentially dangerous activities. So you don't, sometimes you may not have a log of unsafe incidents, but you can say, well, we know our, you know, we know our daughter, we know our son, and we know that their mental impairment has not improved. And you know, by virtue of providing protective supervision, they've been safe. Yeah. I mean, for example, you know, at our home, we have alarms and we have locks. And so obviously that would prevent elopement out onto the street. And so therefore you wouldn't have a log of times that she went out onto the street unattended or was a danger to herself in that way, because you're preventing that and you're supporting that. Um, so that's, that's great to bring up Wendy. Thank you. Yeah, and just on that note, if you take precautions in your home that prevent, which you, you're supposed to, it's required, but if you do it and it prevents 
the need for protective supervision, then you don't get protective supervision either. But my guess, and I don't know a lot about your daughter, but my guess is there's other things that she does that require your supervision in the home. So just because you've prevented elopement doesn't change that there's other things that are going on in the home that still require your supervision. So um, the precaution thing is big. Like you do have to take whatever precautions you can, but sometimes you can't. And, and I'll use, you know, the locks and the alarms on the door. If you have other family members in the home, they could forget to lock the door. So if that happens, we have an elopement issue, right? And that happens all the time. Or like, um, you know, stoves, like social workers, when they do the assessment, will say, well, take the knobs off the stove. And it's like, well, we can't take the knobs off the stove. <laughs> like we have to supervise because we can't take the knobs off the stove. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. be thinking um, as family members, what is it that you're doing to support those situations? Yeah. And do, do you do the, Does that person still require your supervision, even though you've taken those precautions? So you want to be prepared to discuss what still, what still exists that might need protective supervision. Right. Yeah. And what tasks you're doing exactly. Yeah. And a lot of times parents put these locks and, you know, all these alarms and everything. And eventually, unfortunately, the individual figures out how to get them off. Mm-hmm. So, you know, still requiring supervision. Um, the other thing I would just mention for an advocacy tip is make sure your IEP and your IPP or any of those documents that talk about, you know, the yearly, what the goals and objectives are, what the strengths, what the weaknesses are that those are all consistent with the safety issues you're observing, right? Mm -hmm. Even if it says parent reported that this happened, if it's not consistent and you have to go to a hearing, the judge is going to question why it's not in those important documents. So you want your log, you want to explain all of that stuff to the social worker, but you want any documents you give the social worker to be consistent with what you're reporting. Yeah. Now, what do parents do if they don't agree with the outcome? So let's say you, you apply, you have your assessment and protective supervision is denied. Um, again, the county has to provide adequate notice. It's a 90 day appeal timeline, unless you were receiving services and they are terminated or reduced that aid paid pending timeline exists again. So you appeal within 10 days. Your IHSS hours have to stay like they are until a judge decides otherwise. So even though it's a 90 day appeal, you really, if you already have the hours, you want to appeal within 10 days. Um, Once the appeal gets processed through the state hearings division, and you'll get a notice in the mail that says, Uh, sort of what your hearing rights are. There's evidence that has to be provided to you. And and I'll go through all of those. Who your county appeals representative is. um, And then when your scheduled hearing is. Right now, they're still doing telephonic. They're not doing virtual. They're doing telephonic. I don't know when those will go back to in-person. But Really what happens is you get this notice, there's a requirement that the county give you their statement of position, so why they denied this, and any evidence they're going to be using in hearing. 
You can also provide evidence, but you don't have the same requirement. You can give it to the judge and to the county the day of. Um, when I'm involved, if I'm if I'm the attorney on it, I give it within two days too because I just think it's fair and I'm not actually worried about the outcome because I wouldn't have taken the case if I didn't think it was going to be successful. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so two days with two days before the hearing, they have to provide you this information, and then these hearings are the most informal hearings I've ever done. Um, they they just sort of they're a little bit easier and they they're low level hearings. So when they were in person, you'd go to the county office and you would meet in a conference room around a table. The judges at the front. You're on one side. The county's on the other side. The county gets to go first and say why they denied it. You get to ask them questions. Then it switches to you and you get to tell the judge why you believe the person's eligible and go through the evidence with the judge. It usually takes 30 minutes, maybe an hour max. And the judge says, okay, I'll issue a decision in writing. And then you get your decision in writing. Quick question on that, possibly. Does your child need to show to those hearings as well? Because I know that could be complicated. (laughs) No, they do not. So um, the county has a form where you can be the authorized representative. And for a minor, obviously, you'd be signing that, right? Or if you assign to somebody else like me to be the authorized representative and you sign off on this form, I can come represent the case on your behalf, on, on behalf of um, the minor or the person with a disability, even if they're an adult, they do not have to attend. I like for parents to attend or caregivers to attend because they can give testimony to the judge about everything that they do for this person. So what happens if you go through this and you're not successful at the hearing? Uh, what else can be done? Sure. Um, so usually I, I find that the percentage of parents successful in these hearings is quite high. So that's a good thing. Um, but when they're not, we have an appeal process called uh, writ of administrative mandamus. And it's an appeal to superior court, which my office does and a few other, I think there's a few other special needs attorneys that will do them. And it's essentially a, a paper appeal to the superior court it's almost all paper. There's only like one hearing you have to attend. So we, you know, our side does a brief, the attorney general represents um, the county. They do a brief, we do a reply. There's an administrative record. Everything that happened during the hearing is submitted to the judge as well. And then the judge will have us do oral argument in court. Um, those are still virtual as well, but we do our oral argument on why I argue why I think the county got it wrong, and then the judge makes a decision. The good thing about those appeals is that there's no filing fee, so usually it's like a $500 filing fee to file an appeal, depending on what court you're in. For these Medi-Cal cases, there's no filing fee. My office takes these cases on contingency because I get attorney's fees if I win. The county or the state has to pay my attorney's fees if I win the appeal. That's good. That's good for families to know going into it. Yeah. 
Yeah. So Wendy, oh my goodness, this has all been such great information for our families. I cannot tell you how appreciative we are of you coming on and sharing all of this great information with families. We always like to ask this one last question, which is, um, what is one thing that you would share with families to help encourage them and bring hope for the road ahead? Yeah. You know, I really find that Medi-Cal and IHSS hearings are something that parents and families can do. You know, we talked about regional center and how I said that I think some families who are pretty savvy could probably get through that process because it's pretty informal. This is so less informal than that, that I think parents don't need, I don't think they need attorneys for the hearing process. You would need an attorney for the, the writ process in superior court, but you wouldn't need it for the hearing process. Um, so with that also, I've mentioned disability rights, California before, and they've got some really wonderful parent friendly, user friendly publications. One is called the self-assessment packet and it's got all the categories. Like, you know how you said you did a log of like how long it took Mm -hmm. it. They have this log in there. It talks you through each category. Um, it talks about protective supervision and what you need to be prepared for that. It even gives you a list of like the county excuses of why you're not entitled to protective supervision. Yeah. And, and like what your response should be. And then they also have a fair, an IHSS um, hearing packet that talks you through the steps and how to get ready for the hearing. So I think this is one of those areas parents should feel empowered because there's a lot of information out there that they can use to get themselves ready for it. And then knowing if they're not successful, there are people that will take these cases to superior court. You know, it's, and it's like a business transaction. Like our offices can make attorney's fees off of these. So if we think the judge got it wrong, we can appeal it for them. Yeah, this is so good for families to hear. And it does bring encouragement and hope because um, often we're so overwhelmed and it just, it's, it's, there's so many legalese involved in all of these supports and it really the, the purpose behind these supports is to support families. And so we don't want to feel like families, um, you know, are lost in all of the, the legal minutia. And we are just so, so grateful for you coming on and explaining and walking us through all of this. So, so thankful, Wendy. Yeah, it's, it's my pleasure. I really enjoy doing these with you guys. So thank you. Resources and contact information for today's podcast will be included in the show notes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share us with others and be sure to follow us so you won't miss an episode. And we'd love to hear from you. So please leave us a comment or rating and connect with us on social media or on our website at hopeonthehardroad.org.